0: I've often wondered why particular letters from the New Testament period were treasured and saved by the early church and, and were in time declared to be truthful reflections of the work of God in a particular time. What is it about those particular letters that made the church feel it was so important uh, that they had to be kept? Why? these particular ones why was this letter to the Hebrews so critical to the church and I and I have a guess about that I suspect in part that it is because it's written in a very critical time period for example Cornerstone Christian School is coming up on a 35 year anniversary a critical time period Some of the visionary leaders from its origin have died in recent years. The folks who have been with us since near the beginning are retiring. It is easy for an organization to lose some of its passion when those who were a part of its start and those who sustained that vision for so long start to leave the scene. And let's face it, The days are harder for the school now than when it first began in many ways. We aren't fighting organizational issues as much, but the society is more broken. The social service systems work less well, and our families are not as strong as they once were. It is easy for cornerstone workers to begin to lose some of the passion for this missionary cause that has always been cornerstone. 35 years measured against human life life lifespans is a long time to pull in one direction. This, This letter to the Hebrews feels similar to me. Some of the early Christian leaders have recently died. Peter and Paul are likely no longer alive. Those deaths must have been a blow to the church. Persecution has increased in recent days. The society feels more broken. Roman occupation is becoming even more difficult to bear. And it has been a long time in terms of human lifespans since Jesus died and rose, probably about 35 years. So it's easy to lose passion and lose some direction when the founders are gone and and those who have sustained the church begin to fade away. These might be hard times for this relatively young church, even though it feels to them like they've been working hard for decades. The author of Hebrews is reminding the whole church, this is not the time to give up. This is the time to double down. Things have never looked better in the author's mind, and this is all because we know who Jesus really is. We can't forget who Jesus is, what he's still doing, what he has promised, and our future is not tied to how burdensome things feel at the moment, it's tied to who Jesus is. And so we should always be, well, No matter how hard the days look or feel, we should be exuberant because no other position makes sense when we see who Jesus really is. But really, if you're looking for reasons to be hopeful, if you're struggling a little personally, you don't have to look any further than just the beginning of the epistle to remember who Jesus is. And so this author has taken all this time to wind up to what really is the conclusion of the central part of the sermon that we find in Hebrews, which is here in chapter 10. Yes, you know, at some point, this letter is a little like the preacher who says, in conclusion, and then goes on for 20 more minutes. The sermon sorta ends at the end of chapter 10, but he's gonna go on for three more chapters. This is is a high point here. And it's not rocket science. When you hear the advices that he gives, it's like, oh, you know, I could've figured that out. And yet somehow when you place these advices right next to who Jesus is, it all gets transformed into this gigantic confidence builder this encouragement for us, that we need to keep doing what we've been doing and remember who we're doing it for. So this is Hebrews 10, starting in verse 19. I won't read all the verses in this section, but most of them. Hebrews 10, 19. Therefore, my friends, since we have confidence to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he has opened for us through the curtain, That is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us approach with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Think baptism. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who has promised is faithful. And let us consider how to provoke one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching, verse 32. But recall those earlier days when, after you had been enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to abuse and persecution, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion for those who were in prison, and you cheerfully accepted the plundering of your possessions, knowing that you yourselves possessed something better and more lasting Do not, therefore, abandon that confidence of yours. It brings a great reward. For you need endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet, and he quotes scripture here, in a very little while, the one who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one will live by faith. My soul takes no pleasure in anyone who shrinks back. Verse 39, but we are not among those who shrink back and so are lost, but are among those who have faith and so are saved. The therefore at the beginning of this passage just simply means that everything that has been said before, commencing with the beginning of chapter 7, is all getting summarized and explains what is about to be said. The major section of the sermon is completed, and now we reach the point of exhortation, the encouragement to do something about it. We've had hints along the way as to what this advice would be. Much like a public speaker who tells you what he's going to say, says what he's going to say, and then tells you what he just said, we're at the place where the author's telling you what he just said. In summary, therefore, it's all coming to a head here. And what does he say very specifically? Based on everything we've heard, we have confidence. We have confidence. We have reason to be confident. Don't miss that. We have the right to be confident. Jesus has secured for us access to God. And Jesus lives forever to be a priest for us. We have received the forgiveness of our sins. We have had our consciences cleaned. Our bodies have been washed in pure water. We have the ability to interact directly with God. We have every right to be confident. And we should be so. But you sort of understand why he's saying that, right? Because in their times, it's easy to lose confidence. The trials and difficulties of life can grind away at us like water running through the bottom of the Grand Canyon. Day after day, the water erodes the rock, and the sheer everydayness of life just wears away the toughest of rocks. I sat across the table from a young man once, he had a revolver in his hand and he decided that his life was too hard and he wasn't going to continue living. The evening I sat with him was exactly one year to the day after the day that his older brother had shot and killed himself. and. The younger brother had been grieving every day since that day and had been thinking every day in his mind, if my older brother can't figure out a reason to live, how can I figure out a reason to live? He didn't have the perspective or the knowledge that he needed to fight back or fight for his life. He didn't know that he had a high priest who loved him. He didn't know he had been created for a purpose. He didn't know that the spirit of God could actually live inside him and be present in him and help him discover a reason to live. He didn't know the very things that could have saved his older brother if his older brother had known them. He didn't know that there was good reason to have hope. It's too easy to lose hope. Confidence. It's too easy to be misdirected, to get caught up in a side pool on the river of life and never move forward. And it was a wonderful thing to be able to tell those things to that young man and be able to take that revolver away from him because our confidence is in Jesus. And so we have to remember that we have allies. We have resources. We have promises. And all of these things, they add up to hope. And so the author summarizes for us. Now is the time for perseverance. Hold steady. Regardless of what happens, don't let your confidence be shaken. In fact, he says, help one another maintain confidence. And here's how we do it. Advice number one. We spur one another on to love and good deeds. It's not rocket science, is it? Spur one another on to love and good deeds. When we see something that moves the world forward or moves a family forward or moves just one person forward, we act. Sometimes the actions that are called for are larger than we can do alone, so we gather friends together and we act when nancy and i lived in michigan we had a friend named brad who uh died of cancer had a young family young wife and um it was a tragedy a really difficult thing to understand but the folks that were around him said we gotta do something for these kids they're gonna go to college one of these days and and so we started a college fund for the kids we talked about it on the church you know we didn't have a lot of resources but we figured if everyone could just do something we could put money in an account and, and invest it, and maybe by the time these kids were old enough, we could help them save for college. And and in a few weeks, we had managed, managed throughout that whole church to gather about $20,000 together that we invested and would one day help pay their way to college. It, it was just something we could do, right? It, it wasn't an amazing thing. It wasn't a miraculous thing. It was just you see a way to be an encouragement and you do it. And it was something that we could do together. That's just an example of spurring one another on. Spurring sentences start with words like, we should do something about X, Y, Z. When you hear that in a conversation, someone should do something about that, well, just take out the word someone and put out we in there. We should do something about this. I wonder if we can make a difference. That child really needs a winter coat. Why are so many people in our community addicted to opioids? Why is there so little affordable housing for the elderly or for the poor or in our neighborhood? Why why is it that way? Questions lead to conversations, conversations lead to plans, and we need to spur one another on to good deeds and good work. That's one way we affirm our confidence together. When, when Ramon Sierra was here, you remember Ramon from a couple weeks ago, preached our spiritual deepening services. His buddy, his buddy Willie came up from New York to see him on three occasions during that time. Uh, it was a long way to drive three times. And, and I was under the misconception that Willie was just a friend of his from high school from when they went to high school in Connecticut together years ago. I didn't understand the whole story. I thought, you know, th- driving up three times from New York City just to hear a guy speak for 45 minutes and driving all the way home, that, I thought that was like a pretty significant commitment for like just a high school friend. But what I didn't understand was that Willie came from a really difficult and broken home. And during all those years of high school and much younger, Willie just essentially lived with Ramon's family. Willie was a brother to Ramon. This wasn't a high school friend. This was a brother who was raised with him and with his brothers because Willie needed a father and a mother, and Ramon's father and mother were Willie's father and mother. And it wasn't like they sat around and scratched their head and thought, well, I wonder what we could figure out to do for Willie. He looks like he used some help. It wasn't like there was a strategy involved. It was just, hey, come with us. Just, Come with us. What you need, you can find here. And he just became a part of the family. And and in doing so, now we have Willie, this committed Christian, for all these years making a difference in the world because one family just saw the good deed that was sitting on their front porch and did something about it. I was really caught by um, all that Ramon had to say about communal prayer together it struck a deep chord in me that there is a togetherness in this mission that we miss if we are not praying together and looking for the good deeds that we can spur one another toward doing. It's the second thing uh, that we're called together and that is the communal aspect. He says, don't neglect the meeting of yourselves together. Don't give up meeting together. We we meet together. We can only spur one another on as long as we're connected to each other. The connection of the family of God is a basic part of what it means to be Christian. I've heard people say to me, well, you know, I don't need to go to church to be Christian. That's absolutely untrue. You don't need to go to church to have faith that Jesus is the Son of God. That's true. You don't need to go to church to believe that God exists and that he will forgive you, that's true. You don't need to go to church in order to worship and to pray, that's true. However, if you are going to say that Jesus is Lord and is master of you, which is fundamentally what being Christian is, then you have to take all of his instructions not just the ones that are convenient to you. And he instructs us to come together as the body of Christ. We're told that we are members of one another, that we belong to each other. And you can't can't just dissect out the pieces of Christianity that work for you and let the rest go. He says to his disciples, you will be known by the love you share for one another. So in other other words, in Antioch, where they're first called Christians, right? which is what we're talking about here, what it means to be identified as Christian, they were known because they loved one another. So if you don't love one another, which can only happens if you know one another and you are in proximity to one another, you can't be completely Christian. You may have a, a scientific slice of what it means, but we're called to this thing together. This community aspect of who we are is fundamentally important. It's part of why we pray with other churches in the community. We understand it's not just this body that's the body of Christ, it's these bodies that together comprise the body of Christ. And so we have to pray with them too because all of this is an expression of what it means to be the family of God. We are specifically told here, don't give up meeting together. Don't isolate. Be identifiable by your love for one another. The third simple advice given here is is just this. Encourage one another. Encouragement is an active verb, something you do. Encourage, do it. It requires strategy, it requires plotting at times. On a few months ago on a particular day in January, I walked into my office and found balloons and post-it notes and messages, 60 post-it notes to be exact. And as I walked into that mess, I recognized some things immediately. Someone had done some planning. Someone had figured out a way to remind me that I was loved and respected Someone knew enough about my life to do this at an appropriate time. Someone took the time to mess up my office just enough to know that I was loved, but not so much as to be a burden for cleanup. That's a fine line, isn't it? Encouragement is showing up, it's making a difference, it's expressing support, love, confidence in another. It's an understanding of the circumstances of another and taking the time to help or support. If you aren't together with others, you don't know how to encourage them because you don't know them well enough to do the right thing at the right time. If you don't know them well enough, you cook food for them they don't like or can't eat, or you send them flowers to which they're allergic. Not helpful. Encouragement requires proximity, knowledge, energy, action, it requires compassion and caring. It's something we all need, every one of us, some of us more than others. Like I said, these three advices are not rocket science. You probably hoped for more inspiration when you came into the sanctuary today. You're thinking, Pastor, could you give us something profound today? Or, No, this is all there is. It's just these three things. Spur one another on towards good works. Meet together. Be together. And encourage one another. All these chapters of writing culminate in these three simple advices encourage one another to good work. Meet together. Encourage each other. They're written in a day when I think maybe the times are more dire. The author reminds those early Christians of the joy they once had in serving Christ, the confidence they originally had when they were younger in the faith. Their priorities back then were not daunted by the difficulties they faced. They endured the difficulties. Did you notice one of those phrases in there? It says, you accepted the plundering of your possessions because you knew you had something far better. They, they cheerfully had their rights violated. I mean, we're pretty weak in the face of adversity, aren't we? Those Christians, those early Christians, seem to be made of sterner stuff. When faced with obstacles or trials or difficulties, we tend to scream out, God, why have you forsaken me? These guys, these guys stand strong and have an unwavering confidence that no matter what happens, God will not forsake them. They're solid. They're confident. I love verse 39 in the end of this chapter. We are not among those who shrink back, but we are the ones who have faith, and we are the ones who, who are saved. When Paul writes to Timothy, this is some of the advice he gives Timothy. For this reason I remind you, Timothy, to rekindle the gift of God that is within you through the laying on of my hands. For God did not give us a spirit of cowardice, some translations say timidity, but rather a spirit of power and of love and of self discipline. In the chapters ahead and after Easter, the author is going to talk about faith and how that impacts who we are as Christians. But for now, he's simply telling you your hope is securely stabilized by an outstanding foundation. Nothing should should shake it. Nothing should shake you. You are built on the solid rock of Jesus Christ, and he's more than you can imagine or think. And the descriptors that we've had through this whole book have been telling us how amazing this Christ who loves us really is. And so our confidence and our hope should be high And we need to tap into that stability and that strength so that we will be encouraged. And so we will have the stamina to then encourage one another so that we can all move together towards him. I have to tell you, I I can't explain the why of it. Maybe it has something to do with Lent and digging deeper into the scripture. Maybe it has something to do with the testimonies I hear coming from you. But I do have this incredible sense of optimism about what God is doing right here among us. God is doing some incredible things in your lives. The unfortunate thing is you guys don't talk about it enough so you, each other don't know it. So talk a little more about it. Share what God is doing in your life because he's doing some amazing things in our families, in our own lives. He is he's doing something special among us. And I have to believe that that will increase. And that as we encourage one another and as we, I think that word in the, in the Greek there is provoke one another to good deeds. I mean, I don't know about you, when I hear provoke, I think of like two brothers in the backseat of the car and one is like saying, you know, you're one inch over my side of the line, get on your side. You know, that's what I think of in provoke. But this is What's this, being annoyed to do the right thing? I don't don't know, I don't know how that comes together, but there's something significant about the togetherness linked to the doing good, linked to the confidence that we have in Christ Jesus. We're not worried about our future, we're not worried about our survival, because we're tied to the one whose resources are unlimited. We're not worried about whether or not God's gonna help us get through, We're focused on the amazing things he wants to do because we're confident he's at work in us and he's going to do great things. We're not in survival mode. We're in triumphant mode because that's the quality and the nature of the Jesus that we serve, right? Right? So I encourage you this morning, have confidence, have hope. Trust in the one who knows your heart. Who's calling you to be all that you can be by his grace? And let's spur one another on to the good deeds he has in mind for us. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you are simply amazing. You're so much more than we can understand or imagine, but just the pieces we do know, well, it makes our jaw drop. We're just amazed. And we ask for your help, Lord. We know that we are going to have hard days. We know we're going to have great days. But under all of our days, Lord, be our strength. Be our fortress. Be our confidence. Be our hope. So that we don't fall short of the plans you have for us. This we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. May the joy of the Lord be your strength this day and always. And may you go in the peace of Christ. Amen.